1: Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances, the podcast where we take you down the rabbit hole into the enigmatic world of the strange, the paranormal, and the unknown. I'm Morgan Knudsen.
0: And I am Mike Brown, who is going to travel down that rabbit hole with you. It's time to dim the lights and settle in. Come along with us on this week's adventure. Who are we going to talk about this week?
1: Well, this is a case that's near and dear to my heart because this is the case we met over.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) I covered this a long, long time ago on Dark Poutine. And I was looking for somebody who knew a little bit more about ghosts than I did. And somebody said, hey, you should talk to that Morgan Knudsen lady. (laughs) 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 And so I reached out. I you regretted that. (laughs) No, I reached out to you and uh, we had a good conversation. It, It was actually a lot of fun and we hit it off right away.
1: Yeah, and I, I so much of what we're doing now, I think, I think was born from this conversation. So I have a huge, I mean, huge debt to Esther Cox. Yes. <laughs> for For this, because that's who who we're talking about, and this is actually a Canadian case, which is is pretty cool because usually Canadian cases don't get tossed into the headlines very much.
0: No, and uh, Esther was from Upper Stuiac Nova Scotia. I'm from Nova Scotia, but she and i would have never met because she was born on march 28th 1860 so that's a very long time ago
1: yeah and in a time period where cases similar to this were being documented ah. which which is very interesting as well and esther was one of those kids and i mean i can kind of relate to this as well she was one of those kids that was was just labeled as different really really early on you know she was she was a tiny kid Uh, her grandmother who'd been left to raise her and her other siblings because her her mom passed away very early. uh, There was, there was a lot of just upheaval very early on in her life, which continued throughout her, her experience.
0: So Esther's mom died of complications caused by Esther's birth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is really sad. So Esther probably carried that with her in a way.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think it, was compounded by the fact that her you know her dad remarried mm-hmm. he moved to Maine with his brand new wife he left the kids behind with their grandmother right. so here he is raising a whole new family and Esther basically left sitting on the sidelines watching this
0: okay wow yeah how did Esther become known to people what happened
1: well this was really interesting because things started to happen Around Esther as she grew up, and mm-hmm. when we look at it from the standpoint of 2023, we would look back and say, "There's poltergeist activity going on here." There's here's somebody who is going through a lot, mm-hmm. and ends up in the center of a, basically a, an exploitive mess between the activity that's happening around her, the the attacks, the spiritual attacks that she's enduring. And she's dealing with a world that was just far beyond her pay grade, including a, an author who basically wanted to make a buck off of her. Wow. So this, to me, this this whole story, there's a lot of lessons here. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think anybody who's been in a situation, whether it be you know being victimized by by a, a people or being victimized by some sort of a, a haunting this is something that's going to really connect with with those people and what she went through.
0: Let's get to it. So we're going to speak to Lori Glenn Norris, who's an author, and she wrote a book about Esther Cox.
1: She did, yeah. And she is, I think, one of the leading authorities on Esther's life and who she was. Hmm. And later on, We can kind of regroup and talk about this a little bit more because, as I say, I think there's a lot of lessons from her history and what we can learn and how people who are dealing maybe with something similar can move through their experiences too.
0: So you have some interesting ideas that we'll get to after our interview.
1: Definitely. What a great opportunity for conversation this case is. I'm Michael, You were the first one to actually really introduce me to the the Esther Cox case, the Amherst mystery. So I'm gonna let you talk a little bit about this uh, because it, that literally this is how we met.
0: I do a podcast called Dark Poutine, which Morgan appeared on for the very first time in episode 66 when I covered this particular case. And the Esther Cox story is super fascinating, mainly to me because it's one of the most talked about Canadian hauntings, poltergeist stories, as well as it is from around my home province in Nova Scotia, and it takes place in Amherst. And it happened a really long time ago. So Lori Glenn Norris, who's with us today, wrote a fantastic book on this. So she's going to help us tell the story of Esther Cox.
1: Lori, welcome.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: It's wonderful to have you. Uh, this this has been, a, a say, a case of interest to us for a while, and uh, this is such a, a fantastic story. So uh, would you be able to give us just briefly a, a little bit of an overview,
2: and then we can delve right in? Right. The Great Amherst Mystery took place in between 1878-79. It took place over a period of 15 months. Oh, wow. And it was a series of supposed hauntings and poltergeist activity surrounding a young woman called Esther Cox, who was 18 at the time. And um, it, as you mentioned, it's very well known, uh, Mike, because... Uh, If anyone Googles Esther Cox today, the great Amherst mystery will come up. Mm -hmm. She's very well known um, online now, especially today with social media uh, in uh, like any, you know, horror genres, ghost stories, hauntings, that type of thing. And it's interesting how Esther's story, Esther was a very... um, you know, uh, a young girl from a poor family, uh, very uh, common uh, upbringing and roots. And uh, this series of hauntings or poltergeist activity with chairs flying around the room, with uh, her supposedly being attacked, uh, her cutting herself, her setting fires, that type of thing. Uh, And it happened in um, the home, The daniel teed home in amherst nova scotia daniel teed was married to esther's sister olive Mm -hmm. and esther lived in the house with them along with a number of brothers and sister-in-laws and most of the activity took place in the home and um attracted a lot of attention and then as soon as you you and your listeners probably well know once the media get involved the whole thing gets out of control pretty quickly.
0: Sure. As, as, as usually goes with these kind of things. Yeah. 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 So what, how did you first become aware of this story?
2: Well, I was uh, born and raised in River Hibbert, mm-hmm. Cumberland County, which is about a 20 minute, 25 minute drive from Amherst, Nova Scotia. I remember first hearing about Esther Cox, um, over the radio mm-hmm. or there'd be every once in a while there'd be a story in the newspaper about Esther Cox and Walter Hubble, who we're going to get into a little bit later, um excerpts of his book was very were, were very often uh reprinted in the newspaper. And then in the late 18 uh 1980s, I became a curator of the Cumberland County Museum in Amherst. Mm. And uh, there was uh, various files on Esther Cox there, and um you know, looking over those files, um I developed an interest, and then people would you know stop me in the street sometime and talk about esther and uh my friend Barb Thompson, um who was uh, is from Amherst but now living in Bridgewater, she after me became the curator of the Cumberland county museum uh-huh. and Barb was the one that really delved into the mystery a lot and kept looking at things, uh, started to gather information about it. And every time we'd get together and, you know, for a long distance call, uh, Barb would start talking about Esther. And I would say, well, let's put our, you know, our money where our mouth is and let's write a book about Esther. There
3: you go. And
2: we, um, we wanted to write a biography because we felt that Esther was more than the 15 months of the great Amherst mystery. Right. And we wanted, we were very intrigued with how she was represented in the media and especially by Walter Hubble. And we wanted to find out if we could, uh, how much of that was a possibility, how much of it was true, You know, uh, there's so many unknowns here in this story, and uh, we wanted to kind of ferret them out. So from a young age, I knew about Esther Cox, but didn't really get involved with um, looking into her life until until much later.
0: So Hubble, you know, I, I have some notes in front of myself from the episode that I did on her. He said, in person, Esther is of low stature and rather inclined to be stout. Her hair is curly of a dark brown color and is now short, reaching only to her shoulders. Her eyes are large and gray with a bluish tinge and an earnest expression which seems to say, why do you stare at me so? I cannot help it if I am not like other people. What a strange way to describe uh, somebody.
2: That is. Well, Walter Hubble said a lot of strange things. Mm Mm-hmm. That's just one of many things that he said. Right. Yeah. But it's nice to have that description. And uh, because we, as far as I know, there is no identified photograph of Esther Cox. Mm. So whether she really looked like that or not, I mean, it's great to have that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She
1: sounded like she maybe was a bit of uh, of a misfit, maybe even back then.
2: Well, you know, Esther Cox um did not have an easy upbringing or an easy family life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, she was born near Stewiak, Colchester mm-hmm. County, yep. which is a county over from Cumberland. And when Esther, well, Esther was born in 1860, and three weeks after she died, her mother died, likely from the effects of childbirth. So Esther was the youngest child in the family. She had five other brothers and sisters. One sister had died in, died as an infant before that. Mm-hmm. So what happened after Esther's mother died is that the family, the five brothers and sisters, or four brothers and sisters, were scattered within the community. They lived with different families and family members. And Esther went to her uh, maternal mother and father sorry her maternal grandparents okay and grew up with them and uh, her father remarried three or four years later and then his second wife died in childbirth again oh wow so a lot of trauma there's a lot of trauma there we don't know very much about uh, my book kind of Gives an overall day to day survey of what Esther would have done, you know, helping her grandmother around the house, going to school, uh, going to church. Uh, but we don't really know about a lot about that time period as far as Esther and her family is concerned. There were no letters that the family left that Barb and I could find, uh, no diaries written. Mm. Um, So what happens when Esther is this is this has been going on, you know, death in the family, uh, her mother and her stepmother died. Her father marries for a third time and immediately he and his third wife move to um, Maine, the state of Maine. Okay. so the father's kind of out of the picture altogether. Oh, wow. When Esther is 14 years old. Her older sister, Olive, marries Daniel Teed. Um, Olive seems to have been, have traveled to Amherst, maybe to work. I don't know when she and Daniel Daniel met, but they got married in 1874. Mm -hmm. And when they married, all of the Cox siblings went to live with them. Right. So there was altogether... Around seven grown-ups in the family, uh, uh, Esther's brother and sisters, and uh, one of Daniel Teed's brothers. And then in a few years, Olive and Daniel had two children. So there's uh, nine people in that house.
0: And it's not a big house. Like, there's four rooms on the first floor and four on the second floor. It's not exactly a gigantic place. It wasn't a mansion by any means.
2: no. No, uh, they were they were definitely working class. Daniel Teed worked at the at Amherst Boot and Shoe, as I did, I believe his brother and um Olive and Esther's brother William. Uh so their working class family seemed to have been very hardworking. Uh they were Methodists,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um so anyway, there was a lot of, of people in this house, and it's interesting that these brothers and sisters were coming together again. Um, I don't know what their relationship would have been while they were living in separate houses in stewiac but for some reason, perhaps Olive and Daniel felt they should all go together. So uh, after Olive and Daniel married, everybody moved to Amherst. Hmm. And so um, in that house, she was at that time, she just moved in, uh, They moved to uh, when she moved to Amherst. Astor was 14 years old, so there she was with um three other sisters. Olive was married, there was Jenny, who was Hubble describes her as the beauty of the family. There was a sister Nellie, and uh, there was brother William and a brother, uh, brother in law John, Mm -hmm. I think. So First thing that happens, of course, is that the women in the house, it's their job to look after everybody else. Right. Jenny, at one point, Jenny's a little younger than, uh, uh, Jenny's a little older than uh, Esther, but she gets a job uh, in uh, uh, Dunlap's, I think it was some sort of a work room or something. So she gets a job. Nellie gets married. Uh, Daniel and William and John Work all day. So when they come home, they're hungry, they need to be fed, their clothes need to be cleaned. Um, So the person that was carrying most of that weight would be Olive and Esther. Right. Interesting. And of people, everybody in that family, who would ha- in that house, who would have the least status? It would be Esther. For sure. Right.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking.
2: Esther didn't really have a lot for herself. Mm. She wasn't a beauty, uh, you know. If if what Hubble said is is correct, mm-hmm. she worked inside the home. She was she was basically a maid as a young. She wasn't married, and uh, so for four years there, from fourteen to the age of eighteen, she would have been working working in the house and not a lot of agency of her own. And uh, being the youngest person in the house besides the Olive's two children. Uh, so I think that was a bit of a setup for some things to happen. And Esther grew up, she, now, uh, these are from talking with, um, different people with psychologists, psychiatrists, this type of thing. I'm certainly not one of those. Um, it was surmised that Esther may have had abandonment issues Mm -hmm. because of, um, death in the family. Sure her grandparents how would they have brought her up sometimes grandparents um depending on how strict they are can be indulgent to a grandchild sure but at the same time want this grandchild to act like a young lady Mm -hmm. uh to go to church to be well behaved yeah not a lot of room for emotional expression not a lot of room for emotional expression and uh one uh Psychologist that I spoke to talked a lot about narcissism mm. and how you grow up with you like there's no sense of boundaries, right? You may have boundaries in some areas and not in others. So I think Esther may have been of a personality that um, it wouldn't take much to kind of, um, I don't know, to kind of um, cause her to have some emotional like there'd be kind of like an emotional explosion, I'll say, or kind of like, you know, something happened to break the camel's back because she was in this crowded house and, you know, with a a group of people and any, you know, nine people living in a house in any house wouldn't be easy (laughs) at the best of times. So
0: how did this all begin?
2: Well, it's interesting because at the same time as this was the late 1870s of course there's no tv there's no radio people to entertain themselves they would uh you know perhaps you know play their own music have pianos they would sing uh tell stories play games and you're sitting in a house without electricity you know in the nighttime there's oil lamps all around mm. and one very popular entertainment was the telling of ghost stories sure and uh putting on seances hmm. and trying to reach the spirit world from what i could get out of some newspaper articles it seemed that the teed house you know not unlike any other house in amherst home there was a kind of uh these stories were being told and seances were a type of um an entertainment.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was even before all the poltergeist activity started.
2: Yes, yes, this is right. Interesting. So what happens when um in 1878, Esther is 18 years old and um a young man uh, moves to Amherst from Malagash, Cumberland County. Mm-hmm. And Malagash was also the place where Daniel Teed and his family came from. Uh, the young man was called Bob McNeil. And Bob McNeil was a relative of uh, Daniel's. And he, seen, he may have worked as well at the Amherst Boot and Shoe. So before the summer of 1878, I'm sure that Bob and Esther knew each other. And whether they were... What we'll say, you know, going steady, boyfriend and girlfriend, uh, whether they certainly knew about each other and they certainly would have uh, known each other. Uh, So whatever their relationship was, whatever the nature of their relationship was, they went on a buggy ride on, I believe it was the 28th of August, went on a buggy ride. Uh, went out supposedly to um, the marsh area in Amherst. And uh, so that was fine. And uh, so later, it was in the evening. Uh, So later on, uh, two or three hours later, Esther comes to the door of Daniel's house and she's beating on the door and she's crying.
3: Hmm.
2: And um, she won't... I don't think at this time she really told them what what was going on, but something had happened and she was very very upset. Now, according to Hubble, the very next day Bob McNeil leaves town. Oh, interesting. That's never and according been. to Hubble, he was never heard from again, which is which is not correct. But whatever happened, maybe Bob McNeil had already decided to leave town and was telling Esther about it. She got upset about that. Um, Esther later on, I'm not sure I forget when in the sequence of the story that she did say that Bob McNeil had drawn a gun on her. Oh dear. Wow. Whether that was true or not, who knows? Yeah. Um, They may have had a sexual relationship Uh, He may have sexually assaulted her. She may have been a consenting partner, sexual partner. Perhaps Esther thought that she and Bob would be married. Mm -hmm. But if he was going away, that dream was shattered. Right. And I think whatever happened that night, and we can't, no one can know what happened, I think that started Esther Cox on a downhill slide. Right. Yeah, And this happened on August the 28th, and on the 9th of September was supposedly the first occurrence of the poltergeist activity. So what was the first instance that happened? It was, supp- it was supposedly a box of uh, fabric that was under, her and Jenny slept together in a bedroom. And a box of fabric came out from under the bed and started to move around.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: this and and this was what uh, Jenny and um and uh, Esther said uh, told the rest of the family that this had happened.
0: So essentially they they saw this box moving around on its own.
2: This is what they said, yes.
0: Yeah, and they claim that they grabbed the box, looked through it, nothing there. Nothing there, no. And put the box near the middle of the room so they could watch it, and it was uh, leaping around on its own.
2: Yes. Wow. This type of thing. Yeah. And that was just mild compared to what happened later on. Three nights later, Esther wakes up the family, and she's screaming, and her body is swelling up. Oh, and she says her skin is burning and um, she's jumping out of bed and, you know, she's really afraid and, you know, wakes up all the family. They all run into her bedroom. They try to calm her down. And uh, I think it's at that point that Dr. Karit, Dr. Thomas Karit, uh, an Amherst physician was called in uh, to look her over. And see what was going on. And at that time, he began uh, administering—I um, don't know—laudanum oh, or dear. something, opiates, something to calm her down, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, a normal thing to uh, administer at the time. And as the as the weeks went by, the occurrences—you know—they were happening almost every night. Uh, Esther's body was uh, swelling she would um, you know she was screaming she said her body was on fire there were noises on the roof and down in the cellar poundings and knockings um, which soon began to draw a crowd people would wait outside the teat home in the evening to hear what was going to happen oh wow and the noises were so loud that they could be heard from outside the house. And it just became a regular uh, thing that uh, this was kind of, you know, what was going on at night. The bedclothes flying around, pillows flying off the bed, that sort of thing.
0: One thing I have written in my notes: uh, one doctor tending to Esther during a particularly brutal attack Saw the words Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appearing in scrawled letters on the wall above the head of the bed. Is, is yes, what? Yeah, holy yeah.
2: smokes! Wow, yeah. Now, the thing is, this is according to Walter Hubble. Mm-hmm. This is according to Walter Hubble. Uh, later on, that doctor, that was Dr. Carit. Okay, later on, he did say in a newspaper that he didn't know anything about that. Uh interesting okay yeah yeah and um later in the book at one point i talk about is how um those words may have originally been uttered by bob mcneil Mm -hmm. oh
1: right okay that's starting to make a little bit of sense
2: and were used and were used in some way uh whether um esther told this to walter hubble i don't know Mm. But, yes, that type of thing was happening. And the noise and um, and Daniel Teed and all, of course, the house was in a total uproar. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. And <laughs> nobody was getting any sleep at night. And um, things were, you know, flying through the air uh, in the middle of the day. Um, you know, a pot or a pan would go flying through the air or something like this or cutlery, that type of thing.
1: Yeah, It's just so intense. And, you know, like in so many of these cases that Mike, you and I have talked about for, well, for both of our, our seasons of the show, it's, it's, it's amazing just how the community itself seems to respond. Like it, it's somewhere between a spectacle and a a horror show, but a car mm-hmm. wreck that yes. nobody can look away from. Like it yes, just, exactly. The, so I mean, this just the, just the stress there. And at some point, they tried leaving the house, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, and it what what happened with that? Did the
2: activity stop? Well, what happened is that uh, this went on. Oh, gee, it was like um, it was you know close to six months or whatever. This was this was going on. And the teats didn't own their home. They were renting it. Huh. So the landlord came in one day and said, you know, and this is this is after Hubble's been there. We didn't we haven't really talked about Hubble yet being in the house. And yeah, we have is, to get to that. Hubble was there. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the furniture was all beat up. The walls were, you know, had nicks in them. Uh fires had been set. And this stuff belonged to the landlord. So he said, look, either Esther goes or the whole family goes. Sure. Hmm. So Esther began to be farmed out. I think it happened two, three different times that someone in, like a friend of Daniel Teed, someone in the neighborhood would take her in, Hmm. but she would be their maid. She was working for them. Right. She wasn't just going and having a holiday or a visit. And whether she was paid or whether any money she got was paid to Daniel Teed, I don't know. Hmm. And she would be, and everything quieted down at uh on uh Princess Street in Amherst, where they lived. But a few weeks into her going to another home, things would start happening. Yeah. Again.
1: At which the which other makes home. sense.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so let's talk about Walter Hubble. Who is this guy, and how did he get involved with Esther?
2: Walter Hubble was an American, born in Philadelphia. And in 1879, he was an actor and a writer. Hmm. And in 1879, he happened to come to Halifax um, on the off-season from, you know, Broadway, New York, uh, theaters down there some actors or actresses, mostly, you know, be be actors or 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 lower down the the bowl. Yeah, would come to the Maritimes or different parts of Canada and would become part of a traveling theater. Mm. So Walter Hubble, he was 28 at the time in 1879. He happened to he was in Halifax being part of a traveling theater group. He happened to read about what was going on in Amherst. And Walter Hubble was very interested in spiritualism Mm -hmm. and the unknown hauntings, this type of thing. And he states in his book that he wanted to meet Esther Cox for two reasons. One, he wanted to um, expose her as a fake and he wanted to make money. Yeah so whether and whether those two things jived together I don't know but that's how he got to Amherst and he got in touch with somehow he knew to get in touch with um a man who ran um what they used to call an oyster saloon in town it was a restaurant oysters were a big thing in the day Uh and um Mr. White had um an oyster saloon uh hubble got in touch with him and said hey how about you and i get together and take esther cox on the road oh geez
3: so
0: to, make her uh, a side you know, show.
3: yeah
2: yeah to have a sideshow mm. so anyway what happens is that um so that's fine he comes to amherst john and uh, john white and walter hubble talked to daniel teed and it's agreed whoever you know i guess daniel teed would i guess essentially be esther's guardian Hmm. and he i guess he agreed that this would happen so their first stop was Moncton, Mm -hmm. new brunswick John and Walter Hubble and Esther travel to Moncton, and they had rented a hall. And Hubble gave Esther instructions about how to act on stage. Oh dear! And basically, she was to sit there, you know, like a very um, sedate young lady. And Hubble was Hubble would uh, lecture about her, tell people about her. And he was hoping that the poltergeist activity would start happening on stage. Wow. But it didn't. Mm. It did not. It just it feels so... like she
1: was farmed
2: out. Like no matter mm-hmm. where she
1: went, it was like she was just very farmed much so. out. It's, it's, it's yeah. crazy.
2: Yeah, very much so. And actually, just in, as an aside, uh the Presbyterian Witness newspaper, which was a newspaper of the Presbyterian Church at the time, wrote an article about how terrible it was that she was being used for financial gain. Yeah. Which which at least was one enlightened uh opinion at the time. Anyway, uh Moncton didn't work out. So the next thing is they went to Chatham, New Brunswick, and the very same thing happened. She got on stage and I think she was holding a fan. She was supposed to hold a fan and, you know, be ladylike. And Walter Hubble would, of course, go on and on talking and nothing happened again. But Chatham people were not as forgiving as the folks in Moncton. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, what happens is that the end of the evening, Walter Hubble... Walter and Esther and John are running for the train to get out of town and they're having a mob after them, throwing things at them. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Walter and John White had uh, their first plan was to take Esther down to the United States. Cause I guess they figured that's where, where the big money was. But after these two disasters, um, they thought, well, this isn't going to work. This isn't, you know, and that is when Walter Hubble moved into the house, and he decided he was going to write a book about Esther. Oh, geez! So that's how we get uh, the haunted. it was originally called the haunted house by S by um, uh, Walter Hubble, which later became titled The Great Amherst Mystery. Right. And where we get a vast amount of information about what went on. Uh, if it, I, I don't care for Walter Hubble's methods sure. or his use of Esther, but if it wasn't for him, we likely wouldn't know about Esther Cox today. Mm-hmm. There were articles in the newspaper uh, in in the local area and in Montreal and St. John and Halifax, that type of thing. But that was pretty much the extent of it. Right. And unless someone went back and, you know, was looking at this or, you know, or sh- she could have also come down as folklore as she has. But Walter Hubble was the driving force behind us knowing Esther Cox. Wow.
0: What eventually happened to Esther? How Like after Hubble leaves, after he's done exploiting her the way he did.
2: Hubble stayed there for about... um Six weeks mm. in the house, got the information that he wanted, you know, what he, he, and he had the book written in no time. Right. And one thing I will mention right now is that the book was very successful. It has never been out of print. Oh, wow. wow. And he wrote it in 19, 1879. Yeah. It's never been out of print. Wow. That's incredible. So you got to hand him that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, but what happens is um, Hubble's decide to leave town. Right. And at the same time, again, you know, the house was all, you know, torn apart with fires and furniture and all this thing. And Esther was farmed out again to a family. Oh, geez. And um, she got into some trouble. Because um, there was a family who was, um, you know, who had brought her in and she was working for them. And they noticed that some um, articles were missing, some clothes, some cutlery, that type of thing. And um, they were found uh, in a next door neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. And what had happened is Esther had asked the, the gentleman who lived in the next door neighbor's house, Esther knew him, brought a bundle over to him of things and asked him to keep them. For, keep them for her mm. and uh the family who had lost the items she Esther tried to blame it on the poltergeist sure but the family was having no none of that and said that you know they didn't believe her and they were calling the police which they did the police went over to the neighbor's house and he and Esther were both brought up on charges wow brother yeah of of uh you know they had stolen things and also esther i believe that esther burned down two burns oh really
3: yeah
0: the the
2: the burn of uh two burns that belonged to the man who had called the police on her
0: yeah i mean fires were sort of a feature of this poltergeist very much so yeah
2: very much so
0: and she she actually uh as far as my notes go, it looks like she did four months in jail. She did. She was sentenced and then only she was yes. released after a month, but, yes. uh, but oh, yeah. oh my goodness. You know, like it sounded like trouble surrounded this poor girl.
2: Young girl at that time period who goes to jail.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's a, it's uh you know, it, in those days, it was a, it would be a scandal. Sure, It would be a scandal for the family. Yeah. It would be a scandal for her. Since the beginning of the Amherst mystery, and the whole community knew, all of Amherst knew what was going on. Um, one thing I meant to mention earlier, and I didn't, it's, uh, Morgan, you had talked about how the community responded. It became quite... A, st- a thing of status for people, doctors and their wives, uh, ministers, their wives, uh, whoever could get could get an invitation to go and sit in Esther and Jenny's bedroom and watch things happen. Uh, wow! Yeah, it it was an it it was a real entertainment, and so everybody knew what was going on, and. Walter Hubble says that at that time, that is when all this poltergeist activity stopped. Right. And he claims that it was because uh Mi'kmaq elder in the community came to Esther or she went to him and he exercised her. Oh, I didn't know this part. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's no... There's no indication of that happening. Mm. Uh, now Esther Cox was uh, a media darling. Sure, she would be followed around uh, by reporters. And if she had gone, if something like that had happened, we would have likely have known about it from the paper. Gotcha. Yeah, but it never happened. But uh, and speaking with my um, my uh, psychology colleagues. They felt that at this time, Esther kind of knew she was at the end of the road mm. as far as um, trying to hide behind so-called poltergeist activity. Right. And nobody believed her anymore. Uh, she was a laughingstock. It was a shame. She had disgraced the family. She had disgraced herself to be in uh, in jail.
3: Right.
2: and it was at the end of 15 months uh, this 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 wasn't working for her anymore. So she eventually
0: moved away.
2: Uh, she moved away. Uh, she married twice. Hmm. She married a coal miner from uh, Spring Hill. okay. And uh, they went to live in Spring Hill, uh, Nova Scotia. Now he died. A number of years after uh they were married I don't know I couldn't uh find out about his name was Adam Porter and I couldn't find out what happened to him but a few years later she married Peter Shanahan mm-hmm. who was originally from Newfoundland and was also a coal miner and they Peter and Esther and Peter had a whole lot of kids Esther had one child from her first marriage And he had a number, uh, Peter Shanahan had a number of children. So they all went south to Brockton, Massachusetts, which was known as Shoe City, Mm -hmm. and uh, went to work in shoe factories, Ah. as a lot of people at that time did. Now, uh, uh, Peter Shanahan was a few years older than Esther, and it wasn't too long before he became ill and he wasn't able to work anymore and esther took in laundry other people's laundry Mm -hmm. for many years and you know raised peter shanahan's children and uh she died at the age of 52
3: Hmm.
2: uh i believe of some sort of heart trouble and she never she never
0: had any of these experiences ever again
2: uh after not not that we know right no And um, occasionally, there would be people who would come to the house and want to know about her story. Uh, Peter Shanahan said if they wanted to know her story, he wanted to be paid. So the story never seems to have come out. Um, I have no indication that no documents stating what she talked about or how she referred to the Great Amherst Mystery after this time.
1: It's such a phenomenal story.
0: Yeah, your book, Haunted Girl, Esther Cox, and the Great Amherst Mystery. Uh, Where can people Mm -hmm. pick that up? Anywhere?
2: Yes, in Nova Scotia. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's in bookstores. Okay. Uh, You can get it on Amazon, or it was published by Nimbus Publishing in Halifax. Right. And uh, you can order it from their website.
0: So if there's anything you want to leave us with as far as uh, Esther and 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 what you learned about her what has stuck with you over the years after your research
2: It's interesting that Esther was in like I, we talked about earlier Esther was in a predicament mm. in the house in Amherst where she really didn't have a life of her own and I believe that she used um, this activity, this poltergeist activity, to give herself some agency. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah it, it really I identified think, her as somebody special and unique where before she wasn't.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And to some people, any attention is good attention. Right. And she certainly got that. <laughs> yeah. Now-
0: We're still talking about <laughs>
2: her. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. She got that. And I think what happened is that, and my book will go into this, goes into this a bit more about the series of young women down through history, usually at around the age of puberty, that this type of activity starts happening. Mm. And I think in many cases, it's for the same reason as what happened with Esther. Now, um, I don't believe that there was, I'm calling it poltergeist activity, but I don't believe there was any. Sure. I believe that it was manufactured, starting out with Jenny, Esther and Jenny, her sister Jenny, accompanied by William and John, who was a brother and a brother-in-law. Interesting. Uh, One thing I will mention about um, Hubble is that when Hubble moved into the house, john and william moved out of the house Mm. they went to live somewhere else and hubble never mentions any noises in the attic or in the basement Mm. and i think that's because william and john was doing that type of thing and i think yeah and i think that esther was just looking for a little bit of um agency a little bit of attention in her own home mm-hmm. but it 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 just got too much it just got away from her
3: yeah
2: because of the media and um, so I do in lots of ways I do admire her mm-hmm. for as a young girl of 18 trying to make a path for her herself but it just it became much bigger it kind of backfired on her uh, and became much bigger. Uh, than you know than she wanted or expected I think
1: well and the sad thing is too is like the trauma that she went through never really ever got addressed you know here it's it's just one thing after another after another after Mm -hmm. another and she just she was alone in this house essentially I mean there's a a billion people that live there but she's alone Yeah, yeah there's yes exactly so I mean it's yeah. I mean, it, you can either, I think, I think for this, it could really go either way. I think you could, you could really make the argument that, that you know, the whole thing was manufactured or that the, mm-hmm. that stress and that oppressed, uh, emotion uh, actually did create some, some psychokinetic activity. So
2: yes. Well, uh, yes, yeah, uh, that, that is a possibility as well. Definitely.
0: So there you go. Our guest has been Lori Glenn Norris, and she wrote the book on this case, Haunted Girl Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. So thank you so much, Lori, for being with us today.
2: And thank you, Mike and Morgan, for your interest in allowing me to talk about Esther. I love doing it. Oh,
1: this has been wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear of that accent, that Nova Scotia accent that I miss so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Wow, that was an interesting conversation that we had with Lori Glenn Norris. Um let's talk about those things that you think we need to really have a look at to figure out what was what was going on with poor Esther.
1: Yeah, I mean this this case at, at, like I was saying at the beginning, I think is something that a lot of people can relate to because life creates chaos sometimes mm-hmm. and sometimes when we start out at a really early age and that chaos kind of gets into our cross, so to speak it can start to snowball mm-hmm. and esther like really did have a have a pretty rough life i mean she had a rough go with her parents a rough go with this so-called boyfriend that she was supposed to have right. uh bob and Stress is often a very strong factor in violent paranormal activity. And we yeah. can see that reflected in other ways in our lives in general. I mean, we know stress affects the rest of our lives in terms mm-hmm. of bad jobs, situations, relationships, but it can also be reflected in the type of activity that we experience, both as in a poltergeist situation, but also as a kind of an attraction point for entities or thought forms that. Often will mirror the the emotions or the set point that we've got.
0: So you you have an idea about Bob, which I kind of have as well. That there was a sexual assault there.
1: That's the feeling that I get from it, and mm. Esther's reaction and the, the the fact that she kept it bottled up and hidden until much later. Uh, in in her life, it to me, is really reflective of somebody just who just had nobody to talk to.
0: Yeah, and like you say, she she had it really tough earlier on. I mean, her mom died right after she was born. Uh, she ends up with a grandmother, moves around a bit, different people in her life, and who knows how they treated her. I don't know. Those were the days when kids were put to work, and maybe she was forced to do things she didn't want to do, chore wise, or all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't sound like she had a very happy life.
1: No. And and I really got the feeling with Esther that it was expected of her to keep her mouth shut. I mean, Mm -hmm. we would look at the time period and how women and especially kids were treated in that time period. You know, you were expected to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here you've got a situation where all of this stuff is going on around Esther, all of this activity, the strange paranormal stuff that nobody could explain. Uh, And then you've got this guy after she's basically seemingly exploited by this this boyfriend the next guy to come into her life is this Walter Hubble
0: right another person who exploits her
1: yeah and you know i and i think we can look back at other cases whether it be you know in the crime world or in psychological history and you can kind of see this pattern coming out now interestingly enough too the activity that was going on in and around her, including some of the attacks that she was suffering, were also very exploitive on the mm-hmm. on the spiritual front, which I don't think is an accident either. What was your takeaway from this?
0: Um, pretty much the same as yours. Esther was a product of her environment, really. She went through some rough stuff. She had people who weren't very kind to her, and like you've mentioned to me, she didn't feel like she was being heard. So this was her way of creating attention.
1: I think a lot of this was involuntary. Uh, you know, I, I most people with poltergeist activity, you know, they're not setting out to have this happen.
0: Yeah, that's a good clarification for that.
1: Yeah, like that repressed emotion throughout poltergeist phenomenon is is really highly documented. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that have these uh, like emotional issues or trauma issues typically will have this stuff, as I was saying before, kind of reflected back at them. And it's not a fault issue. It's just what the dynamic becomes. And what I found really interesting to clarify exactly what we're talking about is that when Esther, as she got older, she ended up with with a, a really good husband. And when her life stabilized, all of this stopped.
0: Yeah. Funny how that works.
1: Yeah. And so often this is this is kind of what we see. And, you know, this is something, like I was saying, very common in a lot of these cases is that, it, it, you know, it really comes back to the person's own internal work. And I mean, back then we we're lucky now because we've got all of these resources, these sort of self-help resources available to us. Like, you know, you and I have talked about this so much. And back then, I mean, there was none of what we have now.
0: Yeah, nothing.
1: There was nothing. It was stigmatized. I mean, it's still stigmatized, but it was really stigmatized back then. And, you know, all of this stuff like meditation and and things like that, I mean, stuff you and I do daily Mm -hmm. just was not common practice. Yeah,
0: it would have been seen as like very exotic. Someone meditating back in those days, they would have thought, well, perhaps they're uh, a Satanist or something in league with the devil
1: yeah yeah like I think there there would have been there would have been such a a stigma to that, and the idea too that that the mind and the environment interact with each other, all of that kind of a thing i mean that really was i mean i mean you had a little bit of discussion about that at, at things like the s p r the Society of Psychical research, but mm-hmm. I mean in a little town in Nova scotia, right yeah, you know, it's just not going to be there
0: well groovy that's esther Cox. The yeah. interesting story of es- Esther Cox, a.k.a. the Amherst mystery.
1: Yeah. And the one thing we should mention to everybody today as well, which we didn't mention in the last episode, is that if you guys go to our social media, mm-hmm. the spiritual health care episodes have changed locations.
0: <laughs> changed locations. Yeah. So Morgan is now doing the spiritual health care on our social media, yeah, I think that's a better place for it too. Really, because people can interact with you about your spiritual healthcare episodes directly.
1: And I'm really excited because originally, that's where spiritual healthcare began was a, a web series, a YouTube series that I was doing during the lockdowns. Ugh. And it was yeah, and it was all video. It was a gathering place for everybody sure. to come and and talk. So we're we're back doing that again so find supernatural circumstances on social media and please come join the fun cuz it's it's really great
0: well thank you for joining us on this eerie expedition dear listeners
1: and remember the line between natural and the supernatural is often a thin one until next time stay curious friends
0: Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can learn more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and learn more about me, Mike Brown, and listen to my show, Dark Poutine, at darkpoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at circumstances at gmail.com. See you next time.